And the reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that. But I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses, even if I, even if I should choose to boast. I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been fighting a terrible cough for about six weeks now, so I hope it behaves whilst I'm up here for the next 20 minutes. Please excuse me if it doesn't. It's a very ambitious subject, the foolishness of God, and as my family and a few of my friends know, I've been threatening to write a book on it for a a number of years. I've got about three chapters done. It's a truly beautiful, beautiful subject. Um, And uh, I can only touch on a couple of examples, and I hope the ones I have chosen will be an encouragement to us and, uh, and inspire us to think more about the way God expresses himself um, as he acts in the world. <clears throat> I'll be making only passing reference to the text that Vic has just read towards the end of the talk uh, when I comment briefly on Paul's thorn in the flesh. But the first example I would like to give of the apparent foolishness of God comes from Genesis chapter 47. So let us revisit the scene that can so easily escape us when we read these passages. We don't have any time to recount the long story of Jacob's life, his terrible grief at the loss of his son Joseph, nor how the family were facing imminent death from famine until they found help in Egypt. How could Jacob possibly have known his lost son had risen to the supreme height as second only in power and authority to the Pharaoh? But there came a day, a day of destiny, when something quite extraordinary occurred, and this is the scene that I would like us to revisit 
in our imagination. And so the text reads, Then Joseph brought his father Jacob into the presence and, and presented him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? <coughs> and Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are 130. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. And then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. This historic moment is glossed over in four verses, as though it is of little account. A great author would spend an entire chapter on this scene, describing this very old and fragile man, worn and withered, weather-beaten, in rude clothes of a desert dweller, who'd been reduced to the dire circumstances of taking an arduous journey to Egypt to find help for his family to survive. And then we turn our imagination to the royal palace, the indescribable opulence that speaks of very great power, the vast tapestries, the glittering gold, the walls covered with hieroglyphs recounting Pharaoh's greatness and his victories and his might, the cortege of servants and guards in immaculate attire, the furniture and the immensity of the structure compared to the humble tents of Jacob's life. And we are beckoned. Scripture beckons us to stop and take a moment and gaze upon this scene and be astonished at the juxtaposition of the two men in their respective circumstances. The great potentate, the most powerful man upon the earth in his day, alongside the old, powerless and fragile refugee, No book from antiquity is so rich in stories and makes such demands upon our imagination as does Holy Scripture. We are beckoned to ask ourselves, where does the blessing fit in here? Where is the finger of God in this situation? Can it be true? Could Pharaoh ever have understood that the salvation of the entire human race was deposited in a promise that God had made to this old man from the desert. Notice how it was not Pharaoh in all his regal splendour who blessed Jacob. No, it was this wandering Jew who from his lowly estate blessed the most powerful man upon the earth. No word of God ever proceeded from Egypt, nor from any other of the great nations or empires of the world. Holy Scripture and salvation was to come through Jacob's line. And as the Lord Jesus said, salvation is from the Jew. It was God's promise that through the line of Abram, Isaac and Jacob that blessing would come to the whole earth. So let us reconsider the amazing humility of this scene of Jacob blessing Pharaoh and ponder the ways of God amongst mankind. The second example I would like to give concerns the faithful and legitimate prophets that we read about in the Old Testament. Hear the words of the Lord Jesus as he weeps over Jerusalem. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing all the prophets and stoning those who were sent to you. And hear the words of Stephen before he was stoned to death. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one? When the legitimate prophets of the Old Testament confronted the nation with their sin, so incensed were they with the prophets' condemnation that they killed them in unrestrained anger and rage. And yet, here's the thing. Here's the thing. While the blood of the prophets was still warm upon the earth, that same ungrateful nation who murdered them gathered up their writings and added them to their sacred scriptures to stand for all time as a perpetual indictment against them and as a testimony to the whole world as to what an unfaithful people they were. This behaviour is absolutely unparalleled in world history. Israel stands alone as the only nation from antiquity who did not sanitise her history. She is an example to all the world that this behaviour cannot be explained in any other way other than that a divine hand was upon them and constrained them to protect and preserve the prophet's words, the very prophets who they murdered. Ancient Israel, in many ways, is an astonishing example of the apparent foolishness of God. And now my third example before I move on to the Apostle Paul. I want to briefly comment on the transmission of Holy Scripture. (coughs) In ancient times, it was a given that nations would record their histories on great monuments of stone. This was so obvious. This was so sensible. For these gigantic monuments would last as long as mankind as a perpetual testimony. And yet, with immense human industry in the construction of gigantic tombs and great cities and monoliths, these vast achievements were covered by the desert sands and lost not for hundreds of years, but for thousands of years. All knowledge of them was lost, and nations we now know to be great empires like the Hittites who are mentioned many times in scripture, learned men for hundreds of years said they didn't exist. But this foolish God, ignoring conventional wisdom and plain common sense, commanded the Hebrews to record their histories in a book. A hopeless, fragile piece of papyrus that fades and frays and burns and decays. But here's the thing, here's the thing. It is very difficult to duplicate an Egyptian tomb. It is very difficult to move an Egyptian monolith. But this frail and fragile document has been translated into nearly all the languages of the earth and has taken wing and has flown throughout all the world. And while Babylon and Nineveh and the great store cities of Ramses and Python lay buried and forgotten, men and women 
and children in their numberless millions all over this world have read of the history of the Hebrews and of God's wonderful promises. Consider the ways of God and his foolishness compared to the wisdom of man. And now briefly a comment on the Apostle Paul. Before his conversion, a strong, zealous and committed Pharisee who exceeded his contemporaries in his studies and his devotion to the law of Moses, a young man entrusted by the leaders of Israel with a mission to stamp out the new sect of Christians in the city of Damascus. Most of us all know the story. Later, when he began his missionary journeys with his companion Barnabas, we learn that on one occasion, while in the city of Lystra in the middle of modern Turkey, with the authority of Christ he healed a crippled man. Such things induce fascination, and the crowd, commonly accustomed to travelling orators and preachers of new philosophies, were, when they heard Paul they were so impressed with him, they cried out, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Paul Hermes, after the Greek god of oratory. <coughs> he was an impressive figure. What we learn, however, on the very same page of the Acts of the Apostles, is that in two cities where they had recently been, so incensed were some of the Jewish people in their synagogues about Paul's message, that they came all the way from Antioch and Lyconian, a distance of over 70 kilometres, with murderous intent. And in one small verse in the book of Acts, as though the incident was considered of absolutely no consequence, we learn of one of Paul's greatest trials. It says in Acts chapter 13, verse 19, But Jews came there from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the people... They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he were dead. And now, let us just for a moment in our mind's imagination picture this scene and look upon this body dumped in some gully or in some thicket, broken and disfigured. Let us picture the scene of these angry and raging Jewish people hurling stones to murder this man. Consider the way the world treats its ambassadors with respect and with dignity and acknowledgement of their high office. And now, look upon God's ambassador. It was a brutal and murderous affair carried out by fanatics with bloodlust in their veins. Stoning was a gruesome and serious matter. And as we gaze upon this pathetic scene, let us ask ourselves, is this the man... Is this the man who wrote the epistle to the Romans, lying here in this ditch? Everywhere he went, he had to constantly feel and suffer the malicious lies and the hurtful insinuations of his enemies as to the legitimacy and the integrity of his motives. And finally, at the end of his second letter to the Corinthians, and against his most sacred principles, he was forced to defend his integrity for the gospel's sake. He would therefore boast of his achievements and after rehearsing a catalogue of his weaknesses and sufferings for Christ, 
He goes on further to say the things that Vic has read for us. I must go on to boast. There's nothing to be gained, but I will go on to visions and revelations. And he tells us of his translation to paradise where he saw things so inexpressibly beautiful that they could not be uttered. And he goes on to say, and to keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Now these words were spoken under the most extreme provocation. The question that naturally presents itself to those who study these documents is, when did this actually happen? And how can it be that this man with such commanding presence and with such force of eloquence and such conspicuous courage could become the faltering and contemptible man who at times despaired of life itself? At the start of his second letter to the Corinthians, he says, For we were so utterly and unbearably crushed that we despaired of life itself. What happened to this strong and confident man who in writing to the Galatians says concerning his bodily ailments, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn nor despise me? What could possibly be wrong with him that he should say to the Galatians, you did not despise me? Well, his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible with the jibes of his enemies. And this, I believe, affords us a clue to his thorn in the flesh. Going back to verses 7 to 9 of our reading, where he speaks of this thorn, there are in the Greek language two words translated thorn in the New Testament. One is the Greek word akantha, and that is the word that in every place is translated a crown of thorns, or where the good seed falls among the thorns in the ground. But there is another word, scallops, and it only occurs in this verse. It is a scallop in the flesh. A scallop was not a thorn, but a palisade. It was a sharp wooden stake upon which it was an instrument of torture upon which its miserable victims were pilloried and exposed to public contempt and abuse. And it was this that the apostle was trying to convey and which he describes as a messenger from Satan that constantly, moment by moment, harassed him to prevent him from being too elated. The stones smashed his once proud and strong body into a distorted and dysfunctioning shell of what it formerly was. And it was this shadow of a man the shadow of a man, with countless beatings, often near death, constant danger and hunger and thirst, three times shipwrecked and constantly toiling with his own hands so as to be dependent on no one, in all of his weakness, in whom the Lord of glory chose to make a perfect example of patience for all those who were to believe in him for eternal life. It was this man who gave to the world those 13 letters that changed the course of history. 
Consider these things and be astonished at the apparent foolish ways of God amongst mankind. The Lord Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in weakness. What an astonishing statement. So let me mention power just for my last concluding comment. We live in a world where nations project power. Let us think for just a moment of the terrible power that has been entrusted to the United States. Never has the world seen such terrible power. The United States principally projects its global power through its 11 aircraft carrier fleets, which it disperses throughout the world at will. It has more carriers than the rest of the world combined, and just one carrier fleet is more powerful than many nations' entire military apparatus. We are used to nations posturing and projecting power, speaking in belligerent tones and threatening one another. This is the way it's always been. In ancient times, Egypt boasted in her horses and chariots. But here's the thing. If you are in possession of total power, if you are omnipotent, if you could wipe out the entire universe with the same amount of energy that it takes your eye to press a delete key. How do you project that power? Consider the pathetic scene in Gethsemane, late at night, where a gracious and promising defenceless young rabbi in peasant's clothes could say to those who were arresting him, do you not think, do you not think, that I could appeal to my father and he would at once, at once send me 12 legions of angels. It only took one angel to destroy the mighty army of Sennacherib outside the walls of Jerusalem. What in God's name can 12 angels, 12 legions of angels do? No one can believe in your God is the constant claim of the cynic. Surely, If he has such power, why does he not save the little children who are being slaughtered? Only a monster would do nothing. Can we not hear the insolent voices of the atheists, the late Christopher Hitchens or the Richard Dawkinses of the world ringing in our ears? The world is suffocating with problems. Why doesn't he fix them? But where would God begin to fix this world. Let us be his counsellor. Should he begin with the pain in grandfather's big toe? Or with a little child just down the street beaten senseless by a drunken father? Or maybe the young mother of three who's just been made a paraplegic in a car crash? Why didn't he arrange for Hitler to be shot in the First World War in the trenches so that none of us had to suffer the ignominy and the legacy of the Holocaust. Maybe he could begin by emptying all the hospitals, 
or turning Ethiopia into a tropical paradise. With such stupid questions, what do people expect God to do? Well, anything, as long as he doesn't first start with them and require of them an account because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What they are really asking for is the apocalypse. Be patient. It will come all in good time. But for now, this world enjoys the long-suffering mercy and love of God. Wrath awaits a future day. But come with me and I will show you the greatest demonstration of the power of God the world has ever seen. No, it is not in Rome or Athens in their glory days. No, it will not be found in the vast expanses of space or the vast complexity of the micro world. Come with me to a barren hill outside the walls of Jerusalem and look upon a naked young man on a Roman cross. Despised and rejected, with no comeliness that we should desire him. Pierced and bearing the stripes of a brutal affliction, forsaken of God. And there, there you will see the power of omnipotence such as this ridiculous world in all of its pretense would never entertain. Who with any sanity would believe such a thing? No author no matter how ingenious or brilliant, could ever contrive such a story. It is beyond the power of human imagination. The gods of the heathen were provincial thugs. They were throwing thunderbolts around, charging around in chariots, warring amongst themselves for sport, raping young women, causing occasional catastrophe, profoundly sexually immoral amongst both themselves and their hapless human victims with little or no care or compassion for the human condition. But they captivated the imagination of the ancient world and vast structures were built in their names. But this God, this Christ from Galilee, was just too silly, was just too weak. Compared to a Titan, a Hercules, a Poseidon or an Apollo, only a fool could be induced to believe such a thing. In the first century, it was called the religion of the gutter. How could a God with any self-respect lower himself to this condition? But the apostle, the same apostle who was stoned, he declared in his, <clears throat> in his epistle to the Romans, for I am not ashamed, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for in all of its apparent weakness and failure and foolishness, it is the most exquisite, the most supreme and the most superb demonstration of the omnipotent power of God and of his inexpressible love this world has ever seen. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Consider these things and be amazed at the ways of God amongst mankind.